break our economic suicide pact. And our allies who want us to wage war don't even know basic geography. Coming up on this week's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 24th of June 2022. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party researcher and Australian Alert Service editor Richard Barden. Welcome Richard. Thanks Robbie. In this week's Citizens Report we're going to discuss our electricity system as a feature, one feature of a general economic disaster that we call our economy and contrast it um, Richard to the countries who don't have an economic suicide pact. Mm. And we're and in on a similar vein, we're going to talk about the expansion of a military alliance from one part of the world into another part of the world while keeping the same name. <laughs> anyway, it's ridiculous um, and we're going to take it on. Uh, before we begin, let me just remind people, please, the best way to help us get this show viewed widely, like it, uh, share it. So if you're not a subscriber, subscribe to the channel. Uh, click the subscribe button and click the bell icon so you can get notified of new shows and make comments, right? We're ha happy to engage in the comments and that helps um, uh, get more attention as well. Also, before we begin, uh, update on the Postal Bank campaign. Now, we're not going to be talking much about the Postal Bank today in the show and regular viewers will be very familiar with the, with the policy proposal. But what we are going to be talking about in economic terms is related to the Postal Bank because we need to go back to public institutions and, pub and a public sector, right, a public part of the economy that makes sure the economy works properly, um, and that's an important part of it. Um, but it's the 24th of June. In a month's time, Parliament will sit for the first time under the Albanese government, and we are going to force this Postal Bank onto the agenda. There's widespread support for it across all the parties, it's just that they're not going to lead it. We have to lead it. And we've done a number of shows in, in the last uh, few weeks pointing out things like there's 576 uh, communities that have lost their last bank, right? We have a flyer. Please help get participate in this campaign. Look back to, through our last shows. We'll do a release on this next week. You can see on our website. But we need people to t order our flyers, take them to your communities, walk the main shopping strip, give it to everyone there, take it to every post office you see. Give them the flyers. You want all the licensed post offices to see this flyer. And so we can build ground um, or grassroots awareness of the policy and feed that up into what's going to happen in Parliament. From our office, we'll be contacting members of Parliament. We'll be contacting all the... I'm looking forward to all the new members of Parliament. There's lots of first-time members of Parliament thanks to this extraordinary election. We'll be doing all that. But we need the, there's a, a lot of people are going to support this policy. Help get the word out there by ordering the um, Postal Bank flyer. You can get physical copies. You can send it around, share it online, etc. Help get the word out there. And in that vein, I want to play a quick video. I spent the weekend um, last week, Richard, in our home state of Queensland. <laughs> Why do we live in Victoria? We're mad. <laughs> um, and I met with the state MP, Robbie Catter, the son of Bob Catter to talk about the Postal Bank because the Catters are massive supporters of the Postal Bank and in fact Bob Catter intends to introduce the legislation for a Postal Bank. So I met Robbie um, and we, we went into the what's called the Red Room of the Queensland State Parliament 
uh, which is the old upper house, which they abolished back in the 1920s or so. Um, and uh, Robbie's just put up this post on his Facebook page for, at the, from the end of our meeting. Have a look. So I'm here in the old Senate room of Queensland Parliament House, which uh, I think tells us that sometimes some of the old ideas were good ideas. And I'm here with Robert from Citizens Party. He talks, um, telling us about the Australia Post Bank idea, which can help save a lot of these inland towns. Tell us what you're doing, Robert. Well, we've written a bill for a post office bank, turn Australia Post into a public bank, a public people's bank, right? Like the old Commonwealth well, Bank was. was. Yeah. The Commonwealth Bank started in the post offices. There's um, the, bank, the private banks are shutting branches all around Australia. Plus, there's not enough funding for economic development, especially in regional Australia. Yeah. A public bank can fill that void. Even buying a house, you can't buy a house for business in small towns anymore. Very, very hard. Exactly. The, the private banks in Sydney and Melbourne make those decisions to cut you off on credit. You can you can have, you can bank locally. Your the credit that's the base of your deposits can come back into the local area yep. and keep the regional towns alive. Fund economic development. Force the private banks to compete. The private banks don't want to lose all their customers to a public bank like this. They'll have to lift, it, lift their game as well. That's what you can do because at the moment they have it all their own way, yep. and Australia is just withering and dying on the vine. What we did before and better than the Royal Commission. Absolutely. Have, have a look online and visit KP or Citizens Party, and there's a lot more discussions about this and how we can achieve it. All right, so they're fired up, and we need the the um, public fired up as well. All right, so anyway. Let's get into the show now. Um, we'll keep an eye on our website for the updates on that. First story, first item, break our economic suicide pact. Uh, we could probably debate this, Richard, but I would say that the catastrophe that is Australia's electric electricity system is probably the clearest proof of the disaster of neoliberalism in Australia. Oh, yeah, I can't think of... I can't think of anything that's just so pervasive that's, uh, that's any worse. No, exactly. <laughs> um, we have committed economic suicide. And I'm going to... Well, we don't have to prove it. If you need, to be, if you need it to be proved, then um, go watch a different show. <laughs> Sorry. No, keep watching the show. But, you know, come on, get with the program. But we did it in a pact. This is Because this is, I want to contrast this later to what the rest of the world is doing. We've had a pact for 40 years with the United States the United Kingdom, New Zealand, the European Union. We all went neoliberal around the same time, right? This was rolled out. This was a program to, in the post-Bretton Woods era, when they decoupled the US dollar from uh, gold, which at least was an anchor to something real. And in the period between 44 when it was set up and 71, it was the greatest period of productivity growth in the history of the world, massive expansion of the world economy. Um, uh, when that was dismantled, the bankers came in, the deregulators came in, they took everything over and they privatised the whole financial system to death, basically. And that's what we've, we've um, been dealing with here. It was all rolled out at the same time. And for every disaster you've experienced economically, there's been beneficiaries. And we've, we've exposed who those beneficiaries are. Um, but in Australia, we put out a release this week highlighting a report in 1991 by the Industry Commission, which is now called the Productivity Commission. Um, and it's a, it's a real bastion of the neoliberal ideology in this country. In fact, what it does is the, the, um, when there's going to be a big reform process, it has to have the imprimatur of an authority say, this is the right way to go. And the Industry Commission presents itself as this objective authority, right? Um, 
we know people who've worked there <laughs> and you know, it's, it's a bit of a dog's breakfast inside. But anyway, whatever the industry commission rubber stamps or the productivity commission rubber stamps, it's always neoliberal and it's always, and it's always um, garbage. So in 1991, they kicked off the whole process um, with a report called Energy Generation and Distribution. That was the name of the report. And I want you to compare the crisis today that you've been living with electricity and you've been hearing about and we're surrounded by, compare it to what this report said were the problems back then. Um, but just before we do that, let's just recap what we're dealing with today. Richard, you know, just remind the audience what are the problems that we're dealing with, which they already know, but let's go through yeah. them. Well, um, we've got, we don't have an electricity market at the moment because it <laughs> collapsed. So the energy market operator had to move in and seize control of the generating capacity because generators were, uh, power generators were pulling their supply out of the market, driving prices up, allegedly. Um, and, and that's it, according to members of the government, including the Prime yep. Minister. So they actually um, said gaming this was gaming. the system. Yep. Gaming the system. Um, we, uh, they've capped, they've capped uh, wholesale prices um, and we're going to pay for that in the long run because the compensation, they're paying compensation to the, to the power companies that um, for you know what they would other, what they would otherwise be earning that are going to be recouped from um, retailers, which means customers will pay for it in the long run. Um, we don't have a we don't really have a gas market either. the The eastern coast, the, the eastern states are all connected with gas pipelines where this um, export train for LNG out of Gladstone in Queensland. Um, they lied to the government, the state and federal governments, when they set that up, that there was plenty of supply and it wouldn't impinge on domestic supply. And lo and behold, they're scooping up every available bit of gas out of the system and exporting it and just keeping the bare minimum of supply in place. And meanwhile, we've pegged our prices domestically to international prices for gas and coal. So now they're using, so now they're price gouging on this uh, war profiteering on this, on this uh, war in Ukraine, or more accurately, the US sanctions in response to the and that also in Ukraine. That, that doesn't just affect gas, it also affects electricity because the gas Because the gas peaking generators are what stabilises the system since we built out, shut down so many base load, as they call it, coal plants, and built so many windmills and solar panels that work one third of the time at best. All right, let me recap. It's expensive. <laughs> There's pricing chaos, and we'll talk about that later. There's shortages and supply chaos. That's the current electricity system in Australia. That's what we've become used to. And it, and it gets intense in bitterly cold periods and very hot periods, yep. right? And they're, and they're shutting down aluminium smelters, uh, brickworks, other large-scale gas users to make sure that they actually have to ration gas in the system, even though we're the biggest exporter of coal and, and the biggest or second biggest year-on-year year-by-year year, uh, exporter of liquefied natural gas in the world. Uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Well, you know, we're mad, Australians. We are mad. Now, we have to face up to that. Okay, so 1991, this report comes out. What were the... Pro we're going to talk about what they identified as the problems then, but let's talk first about what actually was the electricity system in 1990. One, or 1990 when Paul Keating commissioned uh, this, this report. First of all, it was all state-owned, state-controlled, either by boards or 
commissions, right? Victoria had the uh, SEC, uh, State Electricity Commission. Queensland had multiple boards because it's such a big state. So that was, it was decentralised into different boards up in Queensland. Um, but that was Australia-wide. It was always... And it had been... That wasn't a new thing. I, this, is, this, is a, 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 this is an issue with neoliberalism I think people have to reflect on. We've, we've, we've lived in a 40-year period where we've come to accept this as normal. No, this is an aberration from what was normal. For over a century, mm. we had state-owned electricity assets, right? So state planners, oh, terrible term to all you free marketers. No, it worked. State planners decided we need this, we're going to need this much power. We need to invest in these assets here, here and here, because that's where we can produce the power. Places like Tassie, they built hydropower, mm -hmm. right? The most renewable power in the world. They built it. Um, uh, they had lots of electricity. In the, mm -hmm. in, in the 60s, the state of the electricity, Tas Hydro, the Hydroelectric Commission in Tasmania, used to encourage consumers and give them discounts to buy the most energy-intensive things like space heaters as they could to, to, to suck yeah, up all, all this power. Yeah, all the so new cheap. modern appliances. Go yeah, and buy, go them buy them and get a rebate from us because we've got all this power. You used to go buy your white goods at the power company, yeah. right? Because they wanted people to consume this power. They had so much of it and it was cheap. Um, they operated and they set the prices to cover the costs, yep. right? Here's the costs and it came through either, you know, government investment, bonds or whatever, there's, you know, some of it might have had an interest rate tag. Here's the cost to cover all that. Um, work it out what the consumer has to pay. That was the price of electricity. Yep. And they brought in heavy industries like aluminium smelting um, and, and other things. Which is why Tassie, again, had big companies, yeah. uh, paper mills, aluminium smelters, paper mills, down in Tassie because it had so much power. Yeah. Victoria and was the centre of Australia's manufacturing. Yeah, Victoria did the same thing with the um, brown coal plants out in the yep. um, Latrobe Valley. Yep. So that was the system that we had. So what were the problems that, that led to this report? What did they say? Okay, we have a problem here. We have to address this problem. Dire problems. Dire you know. problems. <laughs> well, I wrote ostensible. <laughs> you're, a, you're sarcastic. <laughs> All right, there were three. I kid you not, they identified three problems that must be addressed by a report. We, the system, essentially, this is... The, the overarching problem, the system they claim was not efficient enough. Even though the report acknowledged, Richard, that Victoria, Australian electricity prices compared favourably with the rest of the world, i.e. were in like the top five of cheapest electricity globally, right? Compare favourably, yeah, we were kicking butt, mm -hmm. right? So, oh, we're still not efficient enough. What do they complain about? Overcapacity. Right, you had you had um, a lot of excess capacity that could be brought online. Now, I have a thing about overcapacity. Um, accountants and bankers see it as a cost. Mm -hmm. Engineers see it as planning for the future. Mm. That's what overcapacity is. The greatest example of overcapacity in Australia was the Sydney Harbour Bridge in 1932. There's eight damn lanes on the damn thing. I, my, I read this may be wrong. And two train tracks. And two train tracks. I read somewhere once that you could, at the time they opened it, you could fit every car in Australia on that bridge. Right? Certainly every car in Sydney. Certainly every car in Sydney. Um, but look at it now. Dr. Bradfield planned for the future, right? The, cult, the, 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 out, the cultural outlook was planning for the future. So by the time the, the, the late 80s are coming around, in 1990, well, that's now overcapacity. So overcapacity, 
There were too many employees in the industry. Too many. Too many people had jobs in the electricity industry. Too many people were electricians. Too many people were engineers. Too many people, right? Too, none of them, Richard, though, were salespeople calling you up in the middle of your dinner to ask if you want to change your electricity supplier. They didn't employ any of them. Yeah, funny that. Right? These were all technical people that they employed, but there were too many of them. And the third problem was cross-subsidization. Now, so cross-subsidization basically means that <clears throat> the way that the pricing works is this particular um, group of consumers, uh, they're paying prices at, at a rate that allows these other, this other group of consumers to pay slightly less than they otherwise would, mm. right? And there were two examples of cross-subsidisation. Industry, somewhat subsidised consumers, residential households, mm. and cities, because much bigger populations. And higher income. And higher income, somewhat subsidised rural... Um, uh, well, I'll tell you why they subsidised the rural consumers, uh, rural regional communities, is because... A lot more poles and wires required to get it out there, and if you and if you structured the the costs just to meet, just to co to cover the specific costs of getting electricity to your front door, no one could ever afford it, mm. right? And, but by the one of the hallmarks of neoliberalism was this accounting approach where everything was regarded as cross subsidisation, right? And any any example of that you know we've got to get rid of. Um, um, meanwhile. These, these people like the Industry Commission and the bean counters are the grossest example of, of parasites being cross-subsidised by the rest of the economy, right? <laughs> anyway, so these are the three things. Overcapacity, too many employees, cross-subsidisation. They were the problems of Australia's electricity system in 1990. And the report said this, quote, It is imperative that they, they meaning electricity and gas, it is imperative that they function as efficiently as possible. If they perform poorly, the international competitiveness of major industries is undermined and our standard of living will suffer. The electricity and natural, ga natural gas supply industries have not been performing to their full potential. I mean, this was, this was an ominous warning, mm. right? This is, we're in trouble here, folks. Cheapest electricity in the world, massive industries in places like Tasmania and Victoria, you know, that's what was surviving on the electricity system then, but we're in trouble, folks. We've got to go to a brave new world. Before we go to the brave new world, Richard, would you trade today's problems for 1990s problems? Gee, let me, let me sit down for a while and think about that, Robbie. <laughs> Ask the viewer, would you trade today's problems in electricity for what I've just described to you drove this damn industry commission report in 1990? It was the reason Paul Keating referred to the electricity system. Yeah. In 1990. Yeah. Standard of living will suffer. Well, gee. Well, gee. Look what we're dealing with now. Well, so what did they recommend? Basically, overarching, corporatisation and privatisation. That's what they recommended. That was the... That was the and, and by recommending that, it became... It gave the, the imprimatur of an economic authority that then all the state governments and the feds, but states had responsible for, responsible for electricity, they could all use as their excuse. And by then, the state governments were becoming very ideologically neoliberal because there had been an operation to take over Australia, right? There had been, um, we've documented this, this, this thing called the International 
think tank headquartered in London called the Mont Pelerin Society, and it spun off all these think tanks around the around the world. Um, set up by this guy, Anthony Fisher, that yeah, you've written the about. A- the Atlas Network. The Atlas Network, right? And they, they infiltrated every country. And in Australia, it was the Tasman Institute, the Institute of Public Affairs, the H.R. Nichols Society. Um, those kind of think tanks were set up. And they took over the Liberal Party and the Labor Party. In the Liberal Party, they did a purge. They said anyone who opposed this was called a wet. Mm. And they were called the dries or the economic rationalists. And the wets were literally purged out of... Mm. Um, their seats in Parliament, right? Got rid of them all. And this is when the generation of, that came out of these think tanks, like Peter Costello, etc., came into power. And in Victoria, it was Jeff Kennett. They all had their, when they had this agenda to take down the electric, start privatising everything. And in the case of electricity, they had the imprimatur of this report. So this report recommended corporatisation and privatisation. They made these promises. I want to list them. I'll identify all these promises come out of the summary and recommendations of the report. So pay attention. They said national output would expand by around $2.2 billion annually. And essentially that's what, that was their price tag on what, on, on the, what they called the inefficiency. Inefficiencies. Right? Yeah. Those extra employees, the, the extra capacity... That the, or the overcapacity, all that up to $2.2 billion annually at a time when $2.2 billion was real money. <laughs> it doesn't seem as much today. Anyway, that's what they promised. And then they said this, quote, but even if the benefits were overrate, overstated by 50%, the conclusions would be unchanged. Reform of the electricity and natural gas industries can yield substantial benefits to the economy as a whole. And then they went on. The analysis suggests that in the long run, improvements in productive efficiency would result in a decrease in average electricity prices. And then finally, in the longer term, the Commission expects that greater efficiency would lead to considerable decreases in overall costs with consequent savings for users and the community generally. So now... It's 31 years later. What I want to know, Richard, do you think that qualifies as the longer term? The long run, the longer term? Oh, it'll do. 31 years later, did any of this come true? Um, not even a little bit. Exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. I mean, that's what people have to take stock of here. Exactly the opposite. So what happened? Corporatize, they started corporatisation first. I mean, I, I know... More about Victoria because I was living here then. There was, you know, um, the electricity generator. It was all the SEC, right? Mm. And then they, 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 they set up, they corporatised the generators into different companies. The, the utilities, the poles and wires, were, were split into five or seven different com- companies. I can't remember now. Um, and then uh, they had administration on top of that. And so suddenly you started dealing with, a, instead of dealing with SEC, you were dealing with some, you know, uh, company with a funny name. Right, that serviced your area, yeah. right? That and sort then, of thing. And then they created a whole layer of retailers yes. on top of that that don't add anything to the process except, according to the uh, Grattan Institute in Melbourne here, which is itself a, a fairly neoliberal outfit, but even they said, look, this just added 30% to the cost of electricity bills through hiring all these extra people and, and all the marketing they do. 30, think about that. A third, close to a third of what you pay in electricity yeah. is a retail component that never existed 
before corporatisation of private. Didn't have to. There was no retailing. You but you get a house. Do, am I connected to electricity? That's all you had to decide, right? You start a business. Am I connected to electricity? Now it's got to be marketed to you because you're a captive market. You're going to have to say yes. Anyway, just ridiculous stuff, right? So that corporatisation came first. Then in 1995, Jeff Kennett kicked off the privatisation of um, electricity. His plan was a plan called Project Victoria that had been written for him by these think tanks I talked about earlier, the Tasman Institute and the Institute of Public Affairs. They wrote this project, this Project Victoria document. It was a blueprint to take down the state, right? They used the excuse that Victoria had 30% or $30 billion in public debt. They sold the overall electricity system for $30 billion and um, therefore uh, suddenly were debt free. No, that debt was essentially moved to the private sector who structured it into the price of our electricity, right? The electricity consumer is meeting the cost of Victoria's debt, no longer the, no longer the state government at the most favorable, on the most favourable terms. That's what they did, right? It's all accounting sleight of hand. That was followed by deregulation and deregulation was, has just been an unmitigated disaster where they allow fluctuations because suddenly there's a market for electricity and the price can fluctuate. Well, it goes into the negative in Australia mm. now and it can go as high as, well, what, what would be the average megawatt hour on a normal day? $50, something like that? Uh, I think that's the long-term average, yeah. Yeah. It can fluctuate to what? Uh, something like um, 14,000, 14,200. I remember when I first oh, read that figure. Megawatt hour. I think it's the current cap. That's the, that's the cap, 14,200. And when I first met, when we saw this set up in the, um, uh, the like we got the information, we saw the information first, I remember in the, in the early 2000s, because it coincided with the blow up in California of its electricity deregulation on the back of the crimes of Enron, this company called Enron. And we had been you know, working with people who were trying to expose what was going on there. But what they called deregulation in America had allowed a cap that took the wholesale price from 30 bucks or something, it was capped at $750 a megawatt hour. Australia turns around and deregulates and sets a cap at $14,200 a megawatt hour. That's, that's how much you're getting screwed. And that's priced in half hourly in, in, um, increments, uh, increments mm. right? So in any given half hour, your provider can be paying $14,200 per megawatt hour for that electricity. And they've got to find a way to pass it on to you. Yeah, um, which is what all these smart meters are about. Well, at the end of the Gillard government, the, the minister then, um, uh, Ferguson, Martin Ferguson, he actually proposed that they should deregulate um, uh, retail pricing because of smart meters so that the consumer could pay those direct prices. Mm -hmm. And they'll tell you, oh, see, the megawatt hour is cheaper. Yeah, but the, that's, on a, that's on a normal day. They're not going to tell you it's going to spike to fourteen thousand two hundred dollars, mm. and you'd be paying that directly into your bill, right? Anyway, that's then they set up the national electricity market. The national electricity market was just an excuse to not have to invest, keep investing in the expansion of the of the of the um, infrastructure, right? Oh, instead of building more capacity, mm. let's just run, um, you know, interconnectors, interconnectors the... uh, glorified extension cords over the borders, yep. and, and allow the market, back mm. yeah. And, and, and we're, we're, you know, sometimes you're, we're, we're, you're consuming on paper electricity, in, like in Victoria here, we're consuming on paper electricity that our provider has bought from North Queensland, <laughs> which is just ridiculous, right? It's not, it's not actually happening. This is all, it's just all accounting madness. But they have an actual national electricity market and lots of derivatives and whatever and speculation that goes on that. 
And then on top of all this, they overlaid the renewable energy target. And what the renewable energy target did was it was already chaos, and then it just introduced a lot more chaos into the system. And just without trying to you know, wage the debate about renewables or whatever, Richard, just explain as briefly as you can the, the physical reality of trying to connect these renewables into a system that you want to keep as stable as possible. Yeah, sure. So you have to have, I mean, call it baseload, which is not technically correct, but that's what it's usually referred to. Um, so you have to have a stable, what's called firming power. You have a, a baseline of permanent generating capacity that's that's on all the time, and then you have peaking station gas stations that you can ramp up and down to, to cover minor fluctuations. The problem is renewables, as they call them, the solar and, and wind. Well, obviously, solar panels are never working at night, um, and they don't work very well on cloudy days or if there's dust or whatever. Windmills work about a third of the time, and so they're creating... When they're all working at once, suddenly they have to um, turn down or shut off the coal stations, which they're not designed to run that way. Um, And so you're creating these huge instabilities in the grid that it was never designed to cope with. So that requires a whole heap of extra infrastructure to absorb that. Yeah, and so then you have to have all these extra, extra substations and transformers and they're building battery storage and pumped hydro, which is... You know, hydro is the only actually renewable renewable. Um, but Australia doesn't have very much suitable terrain and, and rainfall areas to do that. So it's great where it works. But um, And so, um, yeah, they've, they've created an inherently unstable system. And it's already, well... And it's at the, it was, it's at the borderline now of, of, of ability to function technically at all. Yeah. And, and you're suspicious. Well, I know you've expressed this suspicion maybe an expert can confirm it, but all these coal-fired power stations that have been down for um, you know, refurbishment or whatever, that have to be fixed up. There's, there's so mm-hmm. many of them at the moment. Um, if The ones that are genuine, because there may be some gaming of the system, but mm-hmm. the ones that are genuine, these things could be wearing out because of yeah. this having to be turned on and up and down all the time. Because yeah, switched of on and off. It's like, you know, if, you, if you're driving around the suburbs in a manual car and you take off like a, you know, like a horse at the gate yeah. every time you get out of a red light and get up to the speed limit as soon as possible and then drive up to the next light as, uh, you know, as close as you can before you slam on the brakes and run down the gears again. So you're in a high car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then that's what they're doing to these generators that were designed yeah. to run at yeah. about 70, 70, 80% of their total capacity permanently, just, just constantly. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that's happened is, so you, you referred to it before, what, what's happened as a consequence of this? Industries have shut down, right? These big intensive, energy intensive industries, they've shut down. We've got very, what have we got? One, maybe two aluminium smelters left, yeah. right? Um, and just let me divert for a second here on aluminium smelters. This was a, the, the development of an aluminium smelting industry in Australia was a big deal. In, in 1970, the John Gorton government looked at this and they set up, a public credit institution called the Australian Industry Development Corporation, specifically to borrow at the government's credit rating and interest rate to invest in smelting. Why? Because they had done a study to show that we were the biggest bauxite exporter in the world because we had the biggest bauxite mine in the world mm. in Weeper in Queensland, but we were robbing ourselves because if you exported, this is $1970, you exported 1 million tonnes of bauxite, you earned $5 million. If you processed that 1 million tonnes once, into alumina and exported that, 
you earned $27 million. Mm. If you process that into aluminium and exported that, you yeah, earned $125 million. Yeah, just aluminium ingots. Just ingots, just aluminium. ingots. And then if you processed in the, the aluminium products, the final products, and you, if you made them here and exported those, that $1 million, that $5 million was now $600 million. That's what we were foregoing by not processing aluminium in Australia. So they said, we're going to invest in this. And we put aluminium smelters, they sprang up, well, didn't spring up everywhere. They're very energy intense, but we had a whole bunch of them, hmm. right? And they've all been knocked out because of this electricity pricing, right? We're going back to being robbed, in other words. Just bear that in mind, right? And they, remember what they said um, in, the, in 1991? If, because of this so-called inefficiency, the international competitiveness of major industries is undermined and our standard of living will suffer. No, no, no. Everything you did has screwed us up. So what do you say to somebody who is doing something insane and self-destructive? You say, stop. Stop doing it. Right? Stop. Someone's going to jump off a bridge. Stop. Go back and start again. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention, because uh, we've got a graph for this. Since 2000, electricity prices in Australia have increased by more than 350%. That's the bottom line, right? That's if it's available for you. So what do you do? You've got to stop. You've got to go back and start again. And starting again means you must, Australia must renationalise our electricity system. It must go back into the management and responsibility of the states to state authorities, commissions, boards or whatever that goes back to doing what they did for 100 years. That's what we must do. Anything less is a joke. We are kidding ourselves. We are extending the insanity. That's what people have to um, uh, be very clear about here. Yeah. What did Albert Einstein say? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. And what we need is more overcapacity. Because what does that mean? That you're preparing for hot days, cold nights, and the future. That's what overcapacity means. Yeah. Screw the, screw the accountants. God, I'm glad I didn't become an accountant. <laughs> I spent two years studying that, then I got involved yeah. in politics. <laughs> and, you know, and just um, allowing for breakdowns, having redundancy in exactly. the system. You know, if, if like one of the units at uh, Cowhide, one of the big power stations, coal-fired power stations in Queensland, exploded late last year, still not fixed. Um, and, you know, something like that happens. You just turn all the others up a little bit, you're covered. And, and where's the money going to come from? Well, this is what this is what our national banking policy is about, right? You can you can um, renationalise. You know, there will be the state governments will have to deal with that, but you can have a national bank that finances that finances the new infrastructure at the lowest possible interest rate, right? Longest term, best best terms, etc. It can all be done cheaply again, right? And um, I'll, I'll say, and and then if we can get rid of the stupid ban on nuclear power, so that. The, the experts in these state authorities, the engineers, can truly decide, okay, to meet our needs, if we, ha if we overlay these other requirements, mm. so we won't debate it here, but if we overlay these other requirements saying we want less CO2 in the system and whatever, they can make those decisions based on what makes sense, yep. not based on all this palaver we've had where everyone's, you know, from not, what's his name, Cannon Brooks, all these you know, billionaires trying mm. to flog us something, right, where, mm. you know, they, they can say, oh, we can have, we can spend tens of billions on all this solar and wind or we can, and, and have to have extra batteries and all that sort mm. of stuff, or we can have modular nuclear reactors that 
um, we can develop in Australia using our own resources and in the long run much, much cheaper and finance it through a national bank. Yeah. And, and of course, one of the arguments they trot out against nuclear power, I saw a newspaper column by that independent MP, Zali Stegall, the other day, is that, oh, no, no, because you can't, you can't build them because you can't ramp them up and down to, to cover the intermittency from the renewables. Well, they replace the renewables. <laughs> They're zero carbon emitting. They, you know, this is, that's the whole point. That's I mean, right. Talk about not seeing the forest for the trees. No, no, that's right. Okay, now, we've actually gone on a bit. We might not be able to cover everything in the show today, but we're going to run through, because we talked about this economic suicide pact. And I just want to give, we have it in, the, in our weekly magazine, um, the Australian Alert Service, which Richard and I are both contributors to. Um, the, uh, in, the, in the latest issue, we have this great article, Most of the World Has Better Agenda Than G7 and NATO Do. Um, and what's happening is, the, while we're in this economic suicide pact with the white countries, <laughs> the, the United, Anglosphere. The Anglosphere, right? And Europe. The rest of the world is, is and, and it's become really remarkable in the context of what's happened in, in, uh, with, between Russia and Ukraine. The rest of the world, and we can illustrate this on a map, what the rest of the world means. The countries that are not participating in the sanctions on Russia, essentially, because they see it differently, they are getting on with an entirely different approach to um, economics. So I'm just going to, these are events that are happening now, right, and in the coming weeks and months that people should be aware of. And we're we're talking about the majority of the world want to participate in this. Um, There's essentially a new G8 in the making. So Mm -hmm. Russia was kicked out of the G8 and it became the G7 again, and that's America and Japan and and, um, the bigger economies in Europe. But there's a new G8 where the, I want to quote the Speaker of the Russian State Duma, uh, Volodin, Vyacheslav Volodin. Have I pronounced that right? Not quite, but it doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> Vyacheslav Volodin. There you go. So he knows what he's pronouncing. Quote, The group of countries not taking part in the sanctioned wars, China, India, Russia, Indonesia, Brazil, Mexico, Iran and Turkey, surpasses the old G7 by 24.4% in GDP calculated using purchasing power parity. Right? They are the economic strength of the world. The BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, there's a, there's a new BRICS conference in the making, but there's a thing called BRICS Plus where they invite other countries to participate, right? Mm. So on the 20th of May, there was a preparatory meeting of BRICS foreign ministers or the BRICS Plus foreign ministers, and they were joined, the BRICS countries were joined by Argentina, Egypt, Indonesia, Kazakhstan, Nigeria, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Senegal, and Thailand. They want to participate in those kind of economic um, forums. And, and these, um, the, the next BRICS summit is called, China come up with this name, quote, foster high quality BRICS partnership, usher in a new era for global development. We're all drowning under inflation and collapsing economic, physical economic structures like our electricity system. They're mm-hmm. ushering in a new era of global development. On 26th of May, the presidents of five Eurasian Economic Union countries, so there's the Eurasian Economic Union, their presidents, and they're from Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Russia, they took part in the first Eurasian Economic Forum in Kyrgyzstan on, quote, that, the title of that was called Eurasian Economic Integration in the Era of Global Shifts, New Investment Opportunities. And the former Prime Minister of Belarus, um, who's the chairman of the board of the Eurasian Economic Commission, Mikhail Myaznikovich uh, told the forum it was urgent for the Eurasian Economic Union 
to discuss development, quote, of not only trade and payment in national currencies, but construction of an independent monetary system, an independent currency system. And already, these the members of this economic union are already conducting more than two-thirds of their bilateral trade in Russian rubles. And what's been the best-performing currency in the world this year, Richard? Yep, the ruble. The ruble. Right? The, all this, this sanction stuff is, is blown back in the West face. Yeah, it was supposed to collapse it, and instead, instead it went up. It's, it's about, by about half. Because what, what they deal with is real, right? I mean, it's you know, very real, oil and gas and whatever. Mm. Um, at the Eurasian Economic Forum, Sergei Glaziev, a former pro- economics advisor to uh, uh, President Putin, who's also a, a former um, chairman of the Schiller Institute, mm. right, our associates um, in the... Uh, led by Helga LaRouche, um, he said that he expects the creation of, quote, a new world settlement currency based on an international treaty within the next few years. Its purpose will be to promote trade and cooperation. And that's a, we were talking about a replacement for the US dollar. They had the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum held in St. Petersburg on the 15th and 18th of June under the motto, I love that I'm, I'm, I'm reading the titles of these events because people need to see where they're going. Quote, new opportunities in a new world. That was attended by 130 countries, mm. that event in St. Petersburg. And Richard, when you compare all this to the financial catastrophes that we're suffering, we really are in an economic suicide pact. Oh, yeah. yeah. And as you said, it was, it was pushed at the highest levels by the masters of the current so-called global system that ain't global anymore, and that's what they're freaking out about. Yeah. Now, listen, because we're not going to come back to it, we are going to touch on the, just briefly on the next subject. We just won't go through it in the detail. I'd hope we would. Um, you've written an article about it. This se- so the, the, the next segment is called Our Allies Who Want Us to Wage War Don't Even Know Basic Geography. And what we're talking about is NATO. And who's going to NATO? NATO's, there's a NATO summit in Spain next week. Who's going? Anthony Albanese has been invited. Um, and I think uh, the New Zealand the Prime Minister. Prime Minister of New Zealand and a couple of others from around Asia. So, because so, this is a smarter like, headline I came up with, just remind the viewers what, what is... So, Anthony Albanese and Ardern are going to NATO in Spain. What does NATO stand for? Well, last I checked, it was the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation. <laughs> now... Um, Think about this. I want, you to, I want you to consider this, right? North Atlantic Treaty Organiser. We know where the Atlantic is. Now, you made a point that... I, I got to, I'll read the quote. At the Shangri-La dialogue that you wrote about, which was um, earlier this month, in the 10th, and, 10th to 12th of uh, June. Strategic conference in Singapore. Yeah. The, the US Defence Secretary gave a speech, Lloyd Austin, and he said this, which you took into task for. He said, We do not seek a new Cold War and Asian NATO... So he he said that we don't want an Asian NATO, but you said no, they don't want an Asian NATO because what are they actually by their actions? What are they actually doing? Yeah, well, they're expanding all these partnerships and inviting their European NATO allies into the region. So they're they're not going for an Asian NATO; they're expanding NATO into the Asia Pacific or the Indo Pacific, as they call it. And that's the other bit. They they, they even write Asia off the map. It's now the Indo Pacific, and look at it on a map, people. Yeah. So there's three big oceans in the world, Richard. There's the Atlantic, there's the Indian, and there's the Pacific. So you could roughly divide the world up into thirds. They've already controlled one third, the Atlantic, NATO, and now they're expanding in the Indo-Pacific. They want to control the Indian and the Pacific. Mm. That's the other two thirds. 
They want to control the whole world and still keep the name NATO. They're just expanding NATO into our part of the world. And, I mean, you know, let's be blunt, the general, the, the Chinese Secretary uh, Defense, Defense, Defense Minister, Minister was there. Um, he gave a speech. There's only one conclusion we can draw where this is heading. Yeah. No, they're, they're, if, they go, if we keep going, NATO and us, if we keep going the way we're going, then we're going to end up in a nuclear war with China. That's it, because they've just said, no, we are not going to tolerate interference in our affairs. We're not going to tolerate infringements on our sovereignty. And that includes the question of Taiwan. Taiwan. Because he said we're doing, we are and have been doing everything we can to resolve this peacefully. This is a relic of the, of the Chinese Civil War from, from the 40s. Yep. Um, and if it, wasn't for, if it wasn't for American interference, it would have been solved decades ago. Yep. Um, but, uh, yeah, he said, anyone who dares interfere with Taiwan, he says, we will fight to the end, no matter what it takes. And the rest of that speech, that he, this, that's what he said at the end, the rest of that speech was a really positive speech hmm. that reflected what I went through earlier yeah, about exactly. these economic cooperation opportunities. China, like the rest of the world, wants to get on with that. Our side, whom, with whom we're in an economic suicide pact, I mean, our, we and our allies, we do nothing but talk about war, Right? And the threat of war that we are creating because we are the expansionary power to defend what? To defend an economic system that's stealing your electricity on a daily basis. To defend the neoliberal system that's destroyed us. Right? And these other countries, they're getting on with building real infrastructure and real economic development. And we really have to wise up, Australians. We have to wise up. Um, and that's why it may seem simple. But I can assure you, we talk about things like a national bank and this postal bank policy because it is, it is the death, the beginning of the, the first death blow to neoliberalism. Mm. The, the, the core of neoliberalism was private banks not having any interference from government so they could loot at will, right? And the corporations are connected to them, etc. That's what neoliberalism allowed. That's what it, that's what it created. And we will fight back by establishing a postal bank. It's a very significant policy. It has a lot of immediate practical implications for people. You'll have your, you know, that, we've, that we've gone through at great length. But, it's, but what it can do um, to take on the private banking cartel globally, not just in Australia, any bank backed up by the government can do that, um, and invest in our, our economic development so we can get off this neoliberal path onto a path that would make us want to cooperate with these Eurasian economic developments, right? Mm. That's where the world is going. We're in an economic suicide pact with one quarter of it, and we've got to wise up, because if we stay in that, we're going to end up in war. Anyway, I think we're running out of time. Richard, thank you very much for participating in those comments. Thanks, Robbie. Uh, thanks to the viewer for tuning in. Keep an eye on our website for the uh, updates on, on um, mobilising around the postal bank. And... Tune in next week for more of the Citizens Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.